If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8, we're going to be reading the first six verses. You may recall um, in Hebrews, uh, he's been talking about Christ being better and Christ being superior. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's a superior revelation. And we've seen, especially as he starts back in chapter 5, uh, even though he's mentioned it earlier than that, but in chapter 5 he says he's a superior priest to the Old Testament priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing, he says, but I can't go on because you all you want is milk. And this is meat. Got to go on from this. You need to move on, and so uh, he, he he continues on. He says, "I'm not sure you're ready for it, but we're going to continue on with this anyway." And so he begins talking about Jesus as our great high priest and being better than the Old Testament Levitical priests, and as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he talks here in the end of chapter uh, eight about um, we we have a high priest who has been made perfect forever. And that kind of brings us into chapter 8. And so, uh, if you're able, I would ask you please to stand together with me as we read from Hebrews chapter 8, the first six verses. <clears throat> he says, the point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for uh, there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was able, uh, when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the one, uh, to the old one, and it is found on better promises. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. In April 2000, a tele-evangelist, television preacher, whatever you want to call him, who was known for his miracle crusades, his name was Benny Hinn, in April 2000, he claimed that Jesus would be physically and personally joining him on stage that summer during his crusades. Now, certainly it was a marketing ploy to get people to come out. After all, people want to see Jesus, don't they? We hear it in some of the more contemporary songs. We want to see Jesus. It's not really too much knew that people want to see Jesus or want to see God. You remember way back in the Exodus when the people are there, um, 
God has spoken to them from Mount Sinai, given them the law, and then uh, uh, Moses takes Joshua up on the mountain and they're to get the law uh, and bring it back down to the people. And while they're up there, they're gone a little while, and the people come to Aaron and they say to Aaron, about this Moses, we don't know. He's been gone an awful long time. We don't know what happened to him. Aaron, we want to see our God. So you remember what he does? He takes all of their gold and he melts it down and he forms it into this calf. And he says, now come out tomorrow and we will worship Yahweh your God who brought you out of, out of uh, Egypt. And so sure enough, they come. There's this calf. And he says, see your God who brought you out of Egypt. And this is the best worship service they've ever had in their entire lives. Nobody is too busy. The day is not too... Uh, the weather's not too bad that you can't come. The weather's not too nice that you want to go do something else. Um, the children aren't doing something that's going to keep me away from everybody was excited to be to worship that day. And they came, and as they gathered around the golden calf, you didn't have to pull teeth to get anybody to sing, or you didn't have to threaten to pull teeth. Saying. You didn't have to do anything like that. They were so excited and they were singing and they were dancing and they were yelling and screaming and making all kinds of noise. Joshua hears it and he says to Moses, there's a battle in the camp. We need to go down and see about this. And Moses says, that's not the sound of battle. That's the sound of singing. They go down and you know the story. They see that they're dancing around the golden calf and it really is, upsets Moses pretty good, and um, he winds up smashing the golden calf and putting it into dust and then make, putting it in water and making them drink it. It's not so new that people want to see God, right? It is interesting, though, that here shortly after Sinai, where they hear the Lord speak and they see uh, on the mountain the light, lightning and hearing the thunder and hearing God's voice booming from the mountain at the end of Exodus 20, what do they say to Moses? Don't ever let him speak to us again. We don't want to hear him speak to us, but we want to see him, even though that is forbidden to make an image of him and the Ten Commandments that he gave them on the mountain, that was forbidden, but we want to see him we don't necessarily want to hear him. We kind of understand the way that God works. God's the God of the word, right? When creation happens, how does it happen? God speaks it into being. When the Lord Jesus comes, how does he come? In John chapter 1, he comes as the word, the communication of God. And we have God's communication throughout the word. He has left us his, his communication in the written word right here. And yet so many still in our days say, I need more. I need more than what God has left me here. This is not quite enough. I know that he tells me that the way he is going to communicate in, the, in his church is through word and sacrament. But that's not enough. We need to change things up. In fact, we might even not have a sermon this Sunday when we come to worship. We might have some other sort of activity going on that will take the place of the sermon. 
Or we may say that we won't have sacraments. The sacraments aren't that important for us anymore. We don't really see the necessity of those. And so maybe we'll replace those with something else in the service. Something else that God hasn't told us to do, but we'll do that instead. Or maybe we'll say, well, God's word, I know it says it's sufficient. I know that Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said that it is sufficient for every good work. It's all that we need, but we need more. So the provisions that God has given us is not quite what we really desire. We desire something different. Now, it was kind of difficult for these first century Jewish Christians because you see, they had already had 1,500 years of certain ways things were being done. For 1,500 years, them and their ancestors had had earthly high priests, someone they could see, someone they could go to, someone they could hear audibly and see with their eyes and even shake their hands and, and get the information from them and, and see them take their their sacrifices and slaughter their sacrifices and thinking, well, I'm good now, at least for some point in this next year, right? And they were beginning to miss that, especially now they're told Jesus is their high priest. They can't go to him. They can't go uh, call him up on the phone and say, would you meet me for lunch, you know? Or they can't go to him with their... their uh, animals and say, would you take this and sacrifice this for me? And they're beginning to wonder if this is really the right way. Maybe, maybe that's what we need. We need something more than what God has provided for us. And so the author throughout the book of Hebrews, writing to these people in this condition, especially they're thinking this because they're starting to be persecuted because they're standing Christ. And they're starting to think, well, maybe we did the wrong thing. And that's the reason these persecutions are happening to us. Maybe we need to, to go back. And he's saying, no, no, you don't. Why would you do that? That would be ridiculous. And he's been talking about the superiority of Christ's priesthood, the superiority of the priesthood and the order of Melchizedek, over the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood and all these things. But now he comes here in our text once again talking about how this uh, the priesthood of Christ is superior to anything else. And he continues by pointing out that his high priesthood has a ministry that is better than any ministry of the Old Testament priests. And so I want us to see that this morning. Hopefully you have an outline in your bulletins. We have two main points and two points under each of those two main points. And... Um, I took this outline uh, from uh, pastor in Westminster uh, Seminary in California named Hal Jones. It's, it's uh, adjusted a little bit from his, but the main points are the same. And so the first thing that he wants to, to show us here, and Jesus having a better ministry than the ministry of, the, of those in, under the old uh, times, the old covenant, he says his, his ministry is a better ministry and he affirms it and he affirms why. And there are two reasons why his ministry is so much better than theirs. The first one, well, both of these reasons that are affirmed are found in the first two verses. 
the point in which we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest. In other words, we have a perfect high priest. He's going to go on and tell a little bit more about it. He says, who sat down at the right hand of the throne uh, of the majesty in heaven and who serves in a sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. First reason his ministry is better is because of the place where he is ministering. The place in which Jesus is ministering is high priest. Um, first of all, he affirms that it's a better ministry by pointing out where Christ is. He is in heaven, right? He is in heaven, and he is there uh, where the true throne of God is. He says it's not some temple made by human hands, but this temple is a temple set up by the Lord himself. We see in verse 2, the, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. The true tabernacle, the true tabernacle where God actually exists, true tabernacle where we can be brought into the presence of the Lord. It's interesting that we get glimpses of this, of this tabernacle other places in Scripture. We get glimpses of it in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, the year that King Uzziah dies, and, and Isaiah is taken up in a vision into the throne room. And there in the throne room, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and seated on the on the. the, the his throne and the uh, train of his robe fills the temple. And what's happening there? Well, angels are going, calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the presence of the Lord, with these angels worshiping him like this, what's going on in the, stru in the structure? The door frames are shaking. And it says even the threshold of the door is shaking. There's not so much there in description of the place itself. What's the description all about? Description, the description is about God. The one who is on his throne high and lifted up. And he is the one who is holy, holy, holy. The, the, the true tabernacle, the true place where God is worshipped, he is the center of it. He is what is seen and, and his presence there draws so much of your attention that all the peripheral things, all of the, the rest that is there, you, you kind of don't focus on them nearly as much. You see the same thing in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 where um, once again, John is taken up in a vision into, uh, into the heaven and into the throne room where, where God is seated on the throne and again, all the heavenly beings are worshiping him with some of the same words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And uh, because you have uh, created all things and by you all things have their being. What's going on in the true tabernacle? What is the focus of the true tabernacle? It's God himself. Now think about the Old Testament tabernacle. When you go in, it was given as God had said it needed to be given. And you have all of these different elaborate things. But where was God? He was behind this thick veil. That's where the holy of holies is, where God's glory would come and sit on the mercy seat. 
you come and you see the splendor of this heavenly tabernacle, the splendor being God himself, making the place so luminous and beautiful. Not even Solomon's temple in all of its splendor could begin to compare. It was destroyed when Babylon came. Years later, the temple was being rebuilt and Herod comes around the time of Jesus and, and rebuilds it again and it was supposed to be some uh, incredible splendor of Herod's temple. But it again is destroyed in 70 AD and that temple pales in comparison to the real splendor of the true heavenly tabernacle, the place where God truly exists. Now we find this difficult to grasp. We do find it difficult to grasp because we are influenced so much by a world that has a, um, a worldview which we would call materialism. Materialism sees the world as one dimensional. And that one dimension is that everything that truly exists is made out of material things. This pulpit's real. This building's real. The, the pews you're sitting on are real, and you know they're real, and you know the person sitting next to you is real because you can put your hand over and touch them and go, oh, yep, there they are. That's real. This is the real stuff. And you see it so often when people are talking to you, and maybe they're not as, as uh, committed to Christianity as you are. Well, it's okay for you to believe in that stuff, you know, but don't. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? And usually what they mean by that is, well, that's kind of the fantasy world. You, you need to be firm, have your, your feet firmly planted on the terra firma here. That world, uh, it's not really so real. This is the real world right here and now. But the true tabernacle, author of Hebrews is telling us here the true tabernacle, the true place where, where God is, where his presence is, and where he is to be worshipped as God, where we can come into his true presence is not here on earth. It is in heaven and that is where Jesus is now ministering. What a better ministry that he's ministering in the place where the presence of God truly is. So the author of Hebrews says to us, yes, first of all, I want to affirm to you he has better ministry because he's ministering in the real, in the real uh, sanctuary, in the real tabernacle, not one made with human hands, but the one made by the Lord. Now, we're going to go back to this in just a little while, but uh, I want you to notice one other thing in affirming the fact that Christ's uh, ministry is better. Not only is he ministering in the, in the true uh, tabernacle, uh, secondly, we see his posture. So it is his place he's ministering, but secondly, the posture in which he is ministering. Again, in verse 1, the point of what we're saying is this. We did have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He sat down. Now, this is not the first time and not the last time the author of Hebrews is going to make a point of the fact that Jesus sat down. Um, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Again in chapter 10, verse 12, we see it. Uh, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why is the author of Hebrews come, keep coming back to this? Why is he coming down to Jesus' posture at this time? Why is it that Jesus is sitting down? Remember where he is. He is in the true tabernacle. In the most holy place where the presence of God is and he is sitting down. In the earthly tabernacle, behind the curtain, in that most holy place where God's Shekinah glory would come and rest on the mercy seat, there were no chairs. Say it again. In the place where God's Glory's presence was supposed to exist in the earthly tabernacle. There were no chairs. What does that mean? The priest couldn't go in there and sit down. He couldn't go in there and sit down because if he were to sit down, it would symbolize somehow that his work was done. And his work was never done. He might do it for this time, but next year on the Day of Atonement, he's got to be back again offering sacrifices not only for his sins but for the sins of the people as well. His work is never complete. We see this uh, throughout the book as well in, in, in Hebrews 7, 27 and 9, 12 and 26. We, uh, we're going to see it that Christ's sacrifice was a sacrifice in which he didn't have to come and bring uh, bulls and goats year after year after year. He didn't have to continually do this, but he offers the sacrifice of himself once for all. And just as his words on the cross and his dying words on the cross, it is finished. We do not continue to sacrifice our Lord Jesus. When we come to the Lord's table, this table is not a new sacrifice of him. And when we come to the Lord's table, it is the Lord's table. It is not an altar that we come to. An altar is where you sacrifice something. We come to the Lord's table, not an altar. Our Lord Jesus has been sacrificed once for all. It doesn't continue on every time you, you come to the Lord's Supper. You're not having a new sacrifice. That, in reality, is heresy. I want you to know we will not continue other sacrifices in the future. When God does his work with his people, there will not be new sacrifices because Christ is sacrificed once and for all. And it's done. Well, so his posture sitting down has quite a bit of significance for the fact that he is a high priest. It means his work in that atoning sacrificial work where he, he gives his life as an atonement for sins, that is completed. He doesn't have to do it again. And it never will be done again. But there's also significance of him sitting at the right hand. The, the author of Hebrews again makes much of this because he's making much of Psalm 110, the very first verse. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is that? Why is he sitting at his right hand there? Well, he's sitting at his right hand he's ruling. He's ruling as the king. He's ruling as the king who has ascended into heaven. And you remember the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew and the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he's seated at the right hand with all authority, exercising his rule as the king of his kingdom even now. He's seated at the right hand. So in sitting at the Father's right hand, it means his work as the high priest, his, uh, his sacrificial work as a high priest is completed. And his work of king is ongoing as he rules. This, is, uh, this has certainly some significance for us. The fact that Christ died once for all and his, uh, his uh, sacrifice paid for sins. We don't have to bring more sacrifices. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves for our sins. Remember Martin Luther trying to get rid of his sins, uh, trying to, trying to uh, beat his own body to take a whip and hit himself in the back with it, trying to get rid of his sins, trying to, trying to punish himself for his sins. Doesn't work that way. Jesus has already taken it. Once for all, he's paid for our sins. That means our sins are forgiven. So we see the ministry of Jesus is a better ministry because he's, he is ministering in the true tabernacle. And as he ministers there, he is actually sat down. And meaning his, his work as the sacrifice has been completed. And he's also sitting down ruling as the king from there. Now, second point we see here that the author goes on. First of all, he affirms that this is true about Jesus. Then he's going to go on to give an argument for why we see it is that Christ has a better uh, ministry. In verse 3, he says, Every uh, high priest is appointed uh, to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Remember already that he's, he's reminded us Jesus is not from the line of Levi. He's from the line of Judah. And no one from that line has ever been a high priest. And if he were on earth, he would not be a high priest because of that. Um, but he goes on to say he is, um, by the fact that he is uh, in uh, heaven at the true sanctuary, um, it, is, it is a better thing. He says, uh, I'm, I'm arguing using your arguments here. What you're looking for is a high priest here on earth. He wouldn't be ministering here, and it wouldn't be good if he were ministering here um, because it wouldn't be the true sanctuary. We see in verse 5, uh, they, talking about the old covenant uh, priest, the old covenant high priest who you're wanting to see, he says, they serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. It's not the real thing. It's a copy and a shadow. He's going to come back to this kind of language later on as we see the things of the Old Testament. They're a copy and a shadow. They're pointing to a reality to come in Christ. But he says this temple was a copy and a shadow in heaven. And he reminds us that in Exodus 25, when Moses is told how to set up the tabernacle, 
He's giving very specific directions. And God is giving the directions. And God says to him, don't you vary from these directions. This is exactly the way you're to do it. Why was God so specific? Well, it's supposed to be a shadow. It's supposed to be a copy of that in heaven and every aspect of it somehow will, will copy that which is in heaven. But it is only a copy. It is only a shadow. Can you imagine if you had, or many of you may have in your, in your presence at home, a copy of the Declaration of Independence. That's pretty cool. We like it. We can read it. But you don't have the real thing, do you? Uh, the real thing's in Washington somewhere, and it's locked away under, under uh, you know, glass. You can go look at it, but it's not the real thing. How much greater, how much greater is it that um, the real thing exists in heaven? And that's where our, our Lord is truly serving. He's not serving in a copy which is temporal and provisional. He's serving in the real temple, the real temple where God exists, in the real thing. If Jesus were on earth, he wouldn't be ministering in the real temple, in the real sanctuary. And if that were the case, we still would not be able to come into the presence of God because in that copy, you remember once again, the place where God exists behind the veil. You couldn't go there. But with Jesus ministering in the true temple, that veil's not there. And Jesus comes as the spotless lamb of God, totally righteous, so he's able to come into the presence of the Father. And as our great high priest, what's the high priest do? He takes us to the Father and being that it is the true sanctuary in heaven, we truly come into the presence of the Father. Later, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us that we can come boldly into his presence. You could never do that under the old way. And so he says that uh, um, it, it, this better ministry is argued for uh, by taking their argument and saying, we, we want uh, the earthly high priest saying that wouldn't work. It doesn't really accomplish what, what you want it to accomplish. But then he goes on in verse 6 um, to argue, continue to argue that Jesus' ministry is better. He says the ministry of Jesus, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs uh, as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. He's the mediator of a superior covenant. We're going to get into this uh, much more in the, in the coming weeks, but this morning I want you to uh, recognize that uh, covenant has to do with the relationship with God and the way God, God communes with us. And it's an agreement, an arrangement that God makes with us. God says, okay, I'm your God. As God, I get to set the rules, and here's what they are. Um, this is what I'm going to give you. Here are all the blessings I'm going to give you. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the greatest. But beyond that, you, you have these other blessings I'm going to give you. Now, here's the basis of this. I'm promising to give you these on the basis in the garden, on the basis that you do not eat from the one tree. 
Other than that, you can eat from anything else. If you eat from the one tree, I'm going to make you another promise. It's not a promise of blessing, but it's a promise of woe. You will die if you break my covenant. And so the old covenant is based on my ability to fulfill the law, the law's demands. It's kind of interesting, we see in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord comes to Moses and tells him, won't you bring all the people out because I'm going to give you the law. And if you will obey this law, then I'm going to give you all this land and all these things. And, 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 he continues, and, and they say, everything that he says for us to do, we will do it. But do they do it? No, they don't do it. We find in Leviticus... The, the, the consequences of not obeying God's covenant and what will happen to them. And sure enough, because they don't, it happens to them. Author of Hebrews says Jesus comes bringing a better covenant. Jesus comes fulfilling the covenant. You remember when uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham? We read in Genesis 15, and that day God made a covenant with Abraham. Remember what happened? He tells Abraham to get the animals. He cuts them, puts them there. Abraham goes and sits down at the end of it and waits. And after a while, he sees this smoking fire pot and this blazing torch come passing down between. Wait, what in the world is that all about? That smoking fire pot and blazing torch is a theophany. It's an appearance of God. God revealing himself uh, uh, visibly as a smoking fire pot. And it comes down between the pieces of the animal. Usually in a covenant, what they would do is they'd take an animal and cut it apart, and the two parties in the covenant would lock arms and walk between the pieces of the animal. Are you following me? This is a covenant ceremony. We, you've never seen this, I bet. We've never done it here. All right. and, so, and if we start, you need to start questioning your elders, all of us. But anyway, um, so, so what usually would happen in a covenant, they take the animal, they cut it, and, the, and the, the parties of the covenant lock arms and walk between it. And what they're saying is, if either of us break our part of this covenant, may we be torn apart as these animals are torn apart. Now God has told Abraham, he's making a covenant with Abraham, tells him to get these animals, and he tears them in half and puts them, makes a little aisle like this center aisle down here. Abraham sits on one end like he's sitting up here waiting, and the smoking fire pot comes down between the pieces of the animal. Comes down alone. God himself is making the covenant, and he's saying, this is my covenant with you. I'm not locking arms with you. I'm not saying you have to uphold your end of the bargain. I'm saying this is what I'm going to do for you. And if I break my covenant with you, may I be torn apart even as these animals are torn apart. You see, the covenant of grace is not a covenant in which we have to do our part. The covenant of grace is a unilateral covenant where God says, the part that I demand of you, I will provide for you in Christ Jesus. 
And so we see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. That not of ourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Isn't that a better covenant? Isn't that a better covenant than one that says, let me do my part? And when I, when I don't do my part, I say, give me another chance. I'll get it right next time. <laughs> we never do. God got it right. It's a unilateral covenant. It's a covenant of grace where he demands of us certain things. And then he says, I will provide what I demanded for you. I provided in Christ Jesus. He's going to go on and talk about next week as we go into the, the covenant a little more. He'll talk about... Uh, how much better this uh, new covenant is than the, than the older one. Um, from, uh, he's going to talk to us about Jeremiah 31 where the law is not just on external tablets but it's now written on our heart and so on. He's arguing that Jesus has a better ministry because he is ministering in the true, in the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle where God is and that his, he, he is ministering in a better covenant, which is a covenant of grace. And so this morning, we don't see Jesus here physically. We may think, man, I, I, I wish he was. I wish that there was something more that he would give us besides just word and sacrament. I need more. But it seems that God has given us what he, we need. You know? Are we going to trust him for giving us what he needs? Are we going to trust him that he has given us a better ministry in our great high priest and that he has provided all that we need in him? Jesus has gone out of our sight for the time being in John 14. He tells his disciples he's going away for a little while, and as he goes away, he's going to be preparing a place for them. He's preparing a place for us. And while he's out of our sight at this time, it's not always, he's going to come back and receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may be also. And we may have a restored relationship with the creator of the universe by basis of the work of our great high priest. Well, let's pray together.